Morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is Matthew 8, 5-13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as he believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Okay, what's up? Everybody good? Just found out the Super Bowl is going today. Sports ball. All right. Um, we're rooting for the... Okay. Didn't. I still don't know. I don't. Are there Vikings? I remember. I remember a show where... Yeah, I, saw, I started a war, apparently. I forget what show it was. It might have been a Seinfeld where this guy's betting on stuff, and he's like, well, how do you bet? And you're always right. How do you do? Well, if it's like a falcon and a bear, the bear's obviously going to beat the falcon, so that's how, I, that's how I bet money, and he wins. Okay. Anyways, okay, so this passage, people read this passage, and they say, well, it's a great little story about Jesus healing somebody and then threatening to throw a bunch of people in hell. Um, misses the point entirely, um, and there is so much in here that directly goes with what we are talk, what basically our world is constantly dealing with today. Um, I think most people don't understand how similar our modern day world is to the first century under the Roman Empire. Um, the similarities are striking, and you will see them um, in our cultural separations, in our uh, deep desire not to forgive and to reunite and to talk peacefully. All of that comes into play here. So what we're going to do is this. Um, instead of just reading the passage and telling a bunch of stories about how God heals um, and then going to communion, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend a lot of time like normal. If you're, if you're new here, this is what we do. I'm going to build a bunch of context. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically place you in first century Capernaum. Um, and then I'm going to put you in the mind of a first century centurion. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to read the passage again. And we're going to see some different stuff. Okay? Uh, so let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Uh, guide me as I speak, as I teach. Um, um, let me remember the things that I've studied and communicate clearly. And uh, change us, impact us with your word. Uh, help us wake up to the divisions in our midst. Help us wake up to what exactly we should be doing about it, how we remedy these things. Uh, show us, reveal to us what the gospel means for our relationships in the world today. Um, for, for those with power, for those without power, for those who don't realize that they have power. Um, reveal to us what your gospel is saying to all of this. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay. Uh, here we go. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Okay. Rewind. Jesus is walking down a mountain. He has been preaching for a while, teaching all the people this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. He takes the law of Moses 
And he reinterprets it all and says, this is not about not doing wrong. This is about acting from love. There is a law which transcends that of the law of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember? Um, so uh, here we are. Um, Jesus is walking with all these new followers, new disciples, down a mountain. A crowd of people are following him. Um, and they come. First off, they meet a leper. Jesus touches the leper, which is a huge no-no in their day, um, and heals him. And we talked about that. Go listen last week if you need to catch up. And uh, here we are today. He's walking into Capernaum, and a centurion comes and meets him there. First off, Capernaum. Um, yes, there's a watermark in the middle of the picture. Plug for BibleWalks.com. Who is listening and will send me a royalty check? Um, okay. Um, now, this is ancient Capernaum. Kafir uh, Nechem. Uh, that is what they would call it. Um, everyone say Nechem. That's fun. Kafir um, Nechem. It's Kafar. Kafir. Um, it means village. And Nechem is... Nahum. Um, it was the minor prophet, Nahum. So it's the village of Nahum. It's an entirely Jewish city. Um, it was always intended to be a, a Jewish city. In fact, this is in an area uh, called Judea, which was 100% Jewish. That was the intention of it. It was meant to be a place, like many times in human history, when one nationality sets up a place and says, this will be a place for us, right? Um, this happens all throughout history. People are still attempting to do it today. The Jewish people actually attempted to do it here in Judea. They wanted all of Judea to be Jews only. Okay? And so um, they named their cities after these Hebrew ancient prophets. So this one is Kafernechum. Now, I wanna I wanna I wanna do something here because I want to show you some interesting stuff, some of which we're gonna talk about next week. Let's see if this works. Um yeah, it's it's working. Okay. So oh, hold on, hold on, back, 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 done. Okay. Is this working right? No, it's not. Okay. Okay, never mind. Um, it left my notes from last, uh, last time, and, and, and instead of just explaining all the lines, it doesn't matter. Okay, so, there is a weird, obviously not first century building sitting right there, shaped like a pentagon. Um, it is not a spaceship, it is not anything, it, it is a church that was built in the last couple decades. Um, we recently found Capernaum, not too long ago, in the last 100, 150 years or so. Um, Capernaum is where three of the disciples are from, uh, Peter and I believe James and John. They would have lived in literally these houses. In fact, that church built in the shape of a, of a, of a, of a octagon, pentagon, who knows, octagon, um, it has, they sit in a circle in this church, um, and in the center of it, there's a glass floor where you can literally look in while you're in church and look into literally Peter's house. Actual Peter's house. We are like 95 to 98% sure that this is Peter's house. We can show this. Historians have been like, oh yeah, that's obviously Peter's house. Um, it eventually turned into a house church, knocked some walls down, it grew into a house church. All the markings are there. This was Peter's house. Um, this is the place where also in our next passage, we're going to talk about maybe next week, uh, depending on whether or not who gets the flu and who doesn't. Fingers crossed. Um, don't shake my hand. Just fist bump me. That would be great. I'm really trying not to get this thing. Um, so um, Jesus walks into that house where Peter is living with his his wife. Yes, his wife and his stepmother. Um, his mother-in-law. Sorry, his mother-in-law. And Jesus heals them. Now, there was a road that would have led right sort of this way, down that street, around the back, and that way. Uh, it's called the Via Maris. 
that road um, was the main sort of vein that ran through um, the area around the Sea of Galilee. So it was really important to the Roman people. Um, and it was so important that because literally everybody who was traveling in the world had to come through there. So the Roman Empire says, hey, we're going to put like a, a toll road there, right? We're going to like sun pass this. So we're going to put that there. And they put a, a Roman garrison there. Um, it was one centurion and 80 troops. One centurion was over 80 troops, actually not 100, despite the deceptive centurion title. It literally, one centurion had 80 troops, and they would move into the area. Um, the, the troops would live outside of the city, off somewhere else, um, in a sort of their own sort of grid with these tents. Um, the centurion himself would move into the city. Um, this is a mile marker uh, for the Via Maris on the outskirts of Capernaum, letting people know this is there's a Roman sort of settlement here. This is a Roman road. You're basically going to pay a toll when you come through here. Okay. This is this stuff blows my mind when I see this. I'm like, wow, that's it's all right here. Now. Um, the Roman centurion would have built a house in the area, probably in in the, the outskirts of the city, within the city limits. This is a, a preserved Roman house uh, buried under volcanic rash in Pom- uh, rash, ash in Pompeii. We cleaned it all up, and here we are. Uh, Roman houses were filled with all kinds of um, paintings and idols and statues. Um, there would have been... Uh, violent images of God's fighting. There would have been naked people. There would have been idols. Um, there would have been craven images of animals, um, like a deer being attacked by dogs, stuff like this. That's usually the kind of stuff that they would find. And the whole house and the Roman property would be decorated in this way because a Roman centurion was wealthy. He was higher paid than a lot of the people. He was 95% more powerful than 95% of the people in all of Rome. He was a very powerful person. He would have served in the military for 15 years and had seen intense battle and lived through it, and had done intensely brave things. And so now, um, he's been put in charge of a century of troops and placed here. The toll road is why this centurion is here. He would have been in charge of all of that, the people traveling through. Now, um, the Jewish people did not believe in craven images. They didn't draw things. They didn't carve pictures of animals or people. The only angels they really would have ever carved would have been the ones for the Ark of the Covenant. They did not believe in craven images. They did not believe in idols. They thought it was wrong. Um, the Jewish people, the reason they wanted the city of Capernaum and the region of, Jew- of Judaism to be just Jewish people was because they wanted it to remain clean and, and empty of idols. These Romans move in, occupying the territory. He builds this house. His house is going to be full of idols. It was illegal for a Jewish person to enter into a Greek house, not by Roman law, but by Jewish law. If they walked into a Roman house, uh, they were now unclean. Being clean was, again, the most important thing to the Jewish people. It meant you were in right, in right relationship with God, right relationship with the temple and synagogue, and you are one of God's children still. Um, if you become unclean, you're out of the, the sort of the community for a while, for seven days or so. You have to pay some money and offer some sacrifices and do a lot of ritual stuff. So, um, are you with me? This is the context. You have Capernaum, Jewish city. Roman moves in, sets up a toll road, garrison of 80 people. Those 80 people are taking care of the road. They're doing the tolls. They're making sure the Jewish people don't uprise and throw a fit and a riot because the Roman is here. That's why the Jews would regularly riot and try to drive the Romans out of their cities. It was an offense that a Roman would live in a Jewish city. 
It was an, as long as this guy was living here, that entire city was considered unclean in the eyes of God. So he was damaging their relationship with God just by existing. And they were not happy with this. Never. Ever. They would always rise up and try to kill these people. The Jews would. Okay. So here we are. Now, um, that's Capernaum. That's the situation in which we are living. Um, what do we know about this centurion? We actually know a lot about this centurion. Um, from history and from scripture. These two things linked together. Our, our jump off point is the synagogue. It was the big structure, um, south of the church that you were looking at in that big picture. The top of this thing here is the white synagogue in Capernaum. That was built in the fourth century. So 300 something. Now, um, underneath this, you'll see like a black wall, a black stone wall. That is what is left over from what was called the Black Synagogue. It was built in the first century, the time of Christ, right before Christ's like, coming there. This thing would have been built and completed. And do you know who funded and paid for this thing? The centurion in Capernaum out of his own pocket. This guy, whom we are reading about today. We know that he loved the Jewish people. Um, in a very respectful kind of way. Like he had apparently admired them, admired their devotion to their religion, and personally gave money and fronted. He was called a benefactor. That means he, he literally paid from his own pocket to build them a place to worship. When he, when he came to the city, they didn't have one. They didn't have a place to worship. This centurion was a good guy. Okay? It doesn't mean that people liked him. It just means that he was a good guy trying to do good things, that he respected these people. Now, um, there's a passage in Luke chapter 7, which is a parallel passage, and it says, He loves our nation and has built our synagogue. It's the elders of the Jewish people here speaking about his relationship to them. He had a respectful relationship with the elders, the Jewish elders. A Jewish city would have been run by its religious Jewish elders. They would have been part of every decision. Anytime someone new came to visit the town, the elders would meet them there and walk them into the city and show them around, and there was this honor system. Um, the ancient world... Hold on. <coughs> The ancient world was an honor-based honor society. Your honor was the most important thing on earth to you. There was nothing more important than that. Have you ever seen those movies where one guy, like, insults another guy's waist, uh, weight? You know, like, he's like, oh, you're looking a little fat. He's like, you have insulted me, sir. Um, I challenge you to a duel. And the guy's like, okay, pistols at noon. Okay, that that's an honor society. And they would literally kill each other over insults. This is how the Roman Empire was. There, there is countless records of Romans bumping into each other and then fighting literally to the death for honor. Because if you backed down from this person, you lost honor. And you literally, if you lost honor, you lose your job and your welfare and everything. So you would literally just fight people who looked at you wrong and all. There are places in the world where it is still like this. Um, we're, we're not too far out of an, uh, an honor-based world. We're really not. Um, but that was the world in which they were living. So this centurion had one of the highest honors in Rome. The elders in Capernaum had incredibly high honor. So here we are. We're at like, yes, we, we all get this. This is our, okay, you understand the context of this situation. Now, I hope. Here we go. Let's read this again. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion comes to him asking him for help. Okay. Loss of honor. Okay. Uh, Lord, he says. More loss of honor. He called Jesus curios. 
Literally, the centurion would have been like the Lord in the area. Okay. Um, he says, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. My servant, his servant, his slave. This is a slave. I don't powder coat this stuff. I don't sugarcoat any of it. This is a slave. He likely got this kid from being a centurion and going to war, conquering a city. And then the survivors are all lined up. And the centurion gets to walk around saying, what do you do? What are your, what's your skill? I'm a fisherman. What's your skill? I'm a courier. What's your skill? I read and write. I'm a scribe. Okay, I want you. You're going to follow me, and you're going to be my new personal scribe. You're going to transcribe all my letters and send them around. And this guy would choose a slave that would become a part of his familia, that would live in his house. Um, so this is a slave. A slave was a tool, not even considered a human being, could be killed just whenever the person decided, I don't want this person anymore, I'll kill him. If Normally when, when slaves get sick, you know what you do? You either kill them and feed them to other animals or you, you just throw them out on the street. People did not care about their slaves. There was no like right to life kind of stuff at all in this day and age. This was the world in which they lived. It was normal to everyone. It was a really bizarre time in human history. Now, however, it was, it is the majority of human history has been like this. Know that. So, here we are. He has this slave, and for some reason he cares. More honor is lost every time he acts like this. Now, uh, he's paralyzed, he's suffering terribly, and Jesus says to him, shall I come and heal him? Remember everything I've said. Can Jesus go to this guy's house? The answer is no. Jesus cannot go to this guy's house. Why? There's idols. It's unclean. If he goes there, um, he is considered unclean. All his respect is lost, all of it. This guy comes to Jesus, humbles himself, and says, I have a servant, a slave, whom, according to Luke, he says is highly valued. In other words, it's not monetary value. That's love. He loves this kid. They have a relationship. They're close. He cares about this kid. And he's paralyzed and he's dying. He comes to Jesus, humbles himself to ask for help from a Jewish rabbi, and says, will you come heal this slave? And Jesus looks at him and says, you want me to come over to your house right now? Remember, this is a public conversation. Jesus has with him a crowd of Jews. The elders would have been there to meet him there. And the centurion walks up. Here we have Jesus entering into the city. All of these people there, the centurion humbles himself in front of all these people, looks to Jesus and says, I need your help. And Jesus says, well, why don't I just come to your house? Nobody now has any idea what to do with any of this. They're like, ah, there are like 12 rules being broken right now. <laughs> Jesus does not care at all. Does not care. Sure, I'll go into your house. What you, what you got, idols? I don't care. I'll go in there. Um, and the rest of the crowd, jaw drop. Matthew's audience reading this book, Jewish Christians, first century Jewish Christians. Matthew is writing them an account of everything he saw from Jesus, he's putting it all in specific orders for them to have this growing understanding and this growing sort of progressive understanding, opening up slowly and slowly who Jesus is. And I imagine it's really hard for them to read. Really hard for them to read. Um, so he says, shall I come in? Now, this is the part where the centurion, he's a centurion. Of course. Of course this person. Everyone has always served this guy. Now, Here's how he responds. Verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Luke translates that as, um, 
um, I'm not worthy. He's interacting with the Jewish cleanliness laws. He's saying, look, I'm a, I'm a Gentile. I'm a Roman. There's idols in my house. Um, I don't want you to come to my house. I know He believes he can heal him. Um, Luke tells us that the centurion had heard about Jesus. How did he hear about Jesus? Well, Jesus was there earlier in the year where he performed a healing miracle, an exorcism in the, the black temple, in the, the black synagogue. Jesus heals this guy and moves on, and this centurion knew about this traveling rabbi healer preacher from Nazareth. He's aware of him. And apparently what Jesus did there made some kind of impact on this guy. He remembers, and he knows about it. And his, his servant is sick, and he, and he, he goes, I, I need your help. I need you to come. I need you, I need you to heal my servant. Shall I come into your house? No, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You'll, you'll become unclean. The respect and the honor that this man has for Jesus is, is insane. It's shocking. The early readers of this book would just, this doesn't make any sense. Nobody would ever act like this. Now, um, let's look at uh, second half of verse 8 into verse 9. So I'll start at verse 8 again. When the centurion, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes. I tell that one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Now, um, this is a, a full-on appeal um, and, and a description of this, of this centurion's honor. Now, remember, a centurion had more honor than 90, 90-95% of, of all the people in Rome. Um, and, and this man, with all of this honor, looks to Jesus. And he basically says, I affirm your authority and your honor. I'm not going to ask you to diminish that. I understand it because I'm a man of honor, who everyone looks up to me, and everyone does exactly what I, what I want because I've earned all of this. And he says, I know my authority basically is a military might. I know your authority is, is, is in something else. You don't need to come to my house. You don't need to become unclean. You can just stay from afar where you are and say the words and my servant will be healed. Um, we need to camp out here for a second and ponder all of this because he, he basically is saying, I would never ask you to humble yourself before me. And in fact, I appeal to your own greatness um, and ask if, if you can just heal him without lowering yourself. Now remember, these two, these two guys are in crowds of Jewish people, the elders, Jesus' new followers, people from the city, have all come out to witness this exchange between these two people. And I imagine it was silent, and they are in awe of this whole thing. Because here's what's happening. Um, this centurion, I'm going to put this the right way here. I'm, actually, I wrote it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it out to you. Um, the church, this is the message that Matthew has for his church. This is why he's writing stuff this way. The church will be made up of people who are willing to give up their power and honor and authority so that the lowest amongst us can know and find love. This is the lesson that Matthew has for his people in this story. That the body of Christ, all of us gather together and gathering under the cross, recognizing exactly who Jesus was and what it took for Jesus to step down from a cosmic throne, divine, into flesh, and walk with us, born in a manger. Paul literally uses language like, 
um, who being equal with God, he pours himself out, empties himself of all that power, and becomes like a servant. What we are seeing in this centurion is like a micro picture of Jesus. And Jesus recognizes this. This man is willing to give up his power, his authority. He's willing to give up his honor. Why? For the literally the lowest person in society, so that person can find healing. And he's willing to give up all those things to Jesus so that a slave can find healing. The social, economical, political ramifications of this story in the first century are shocking. In this day, they are shocking. How many of us are willing to do that? How many of us are willing to be part of a church that is being called by the writers of Scripture to whatever power you actually possess, are you willing to give it up so that the lowest of the low amongst us in our society, in our communities, can find healing? This is where we are in this, in this, in this passage and in this conversation. Now, um, let's go a little farther because Jesus has a response to this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now remember, he's standing in the middle of a bunch of Israelites. And they're like, we're right here. We can hear you. There's nothing blocking this. Okay. So if you read commentaries on faith, um, as you do, um, and, and you're like, you're looking at this passage and you're trying to figure out why is Jesus calling out this man's faith? Because faith, when we define faith, typically is, um, it's like, it's a, it's a mental ascension and understanding. It, it takes a lot of understanding of doctrine and all this stuff. You work it all out and you get it all in your brain. Um, and it's, it's very lofty things. And then you believe that those things are true. And that's faith and that they will come true. And that is faith. So, Certain commentaries, particularly like my boy N.T. Wright, he points out, um, he points out that like, if you're going out looking to find faith, somebody with faith, this is a, a, an unlikely, uh, candidate for, for that at all. Okay. He was, why? Well, first off, he's, he's a guy who owns slaves. Second, he's unclean Gentile. Um, he, uh, he's a soldier in the most oppressive and strongest military might the world has ever seen in that day. Um, he is, um, he knows, he knows nothing really about Jesus. He doesn't have all the information. Yet, yet, when Jesus at the end of his Sermon on the Mount talks about what, building faith on, on the rock and all this stuff, when he talks about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, he talks about doing. Hearing and doing. And the ones who don't have faith are the ones who just hear and don't do. That's what he's talking about. So this man comes forward. So here we have God's people, the Jewish people. Jewish people know the scriptures. They memorize the first five books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, by the age of 14. Um, on top of that, the women would know the books of Psalms and Proverbs. Like They memorized the scriptures. They knew the Bible. Yet they weren't doing it. And then this man, comes walking up, who doesn't know really God. Uh, for all intents and purposes, he's, he's likely not even monotheistic. Let's just admit that. 
He's a Roman. They had a pantheon of gods. And Jesus looks at him and says, I have never seen such faith. Not even in all of my own people. Not even in all of Israel. This is shocking language. This is really, really, really hard to comprehend. Because this man knows stunningly little about Jesus. And he models him. And the Jewish people know everything about the Messiah. And they do not live in that day by his commands. This is what we were meant to take away. Matthew's audience, when they read this, are going to find themselves not as the sick boy, not as the centurion. They're going to see themselves in the crowd around Jesus, having their faith challenged by him. And it doesn't stop there. It gets way worse. It gets so awkward. Here we go. So Jesus looks at this centurion, and out loud, with all these people around, says this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Okay. When you read a passage like this, you need to study um, and, under, and, and do your best to comprehend like this is rooted in first century Jewish understandings. Okay? Um, and you have to grasp their view of life and death and the hereafter. Um, they, the Jewish people, the Palestinian Jews of the first century, Jesus being included, and Paul and the apostles, did not struggle with Gnosticism the way that modern evangelical Christians do. We tend to struggle with this idea of the soul separated from the body flying away somewhere else and the body left to rot. That's Gnosticism. The Jewish people, these things weren't separate were inseparable. They believed that one day there would be a great day of resurrection. They called it the day of the Lord. Um, there would be a great day of resurrection where all God's people are raised. Okay? And only God's people are raised. That's what they believed. And the way that they described this was, and there's going to be a feast. And this feast, actually, if you read the, um, the, the first century, like, there's this writing called like the Targum and stuff. And they write about what the, the spread of the feast and, and one of them even writes that, like, the behemoth from Leviticus and the Leviathan are what they're going to catch and chop up and serve at the, at the feast, which is fascinating. It's like, it's like dinosaur meat. Anyways, um, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, anyways, um, so the Jewish people are talking about this feast, and we're all going to sit at this table with this huge feast, and sitting at this table with us are going to be all the great prophets and the leaders that Israel has ever read about and known about. Uh, Miriam and, 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 and Moses and Deborah and Aaron and all, all of our great leaders. They're all going to be there. And we are going to have this feast. And at the head of the table, the seat of honor is going to be the Messiah who freed us. This is how they talked about the afterlife. Okay? This is what they were looking forward to. Um, <coughs> this passage is, is not about, this passage honestly, it honestly has nothing to do with, um, Eternal conscious torment. That came along much later in Christian thought. Um, this is different. This is different. Um, so, uh, Jesus is looking at this centurion with all these Jewish people around and out loud says, I have never seen faith like you have, sir, in all of Israel. And in fact, when I picture the banquet, the great banquet we're looking forward to, you know what I see? I see you at this table with me. 
And I see a lot of your people with us from east and west. I see a lot of you. And I see your love for people. And I see your desire to be close to God. And I see how you've been rejected by God's own people, by the powerful people in this area who have held this for a long time. I see how they've rejected you and how you've wanted to draw close and they won't let you in the inner sanctums of the temple. And they want this whole area to be free of you and your kind. I see you. And I want you to know, there will be a seat at the table for you. A seat that was formerly filled with somebody who thought for sure they would be at this table. But the cosmic bouncer has taken them and thrown them outside. And it's cold, and it's dark, and some of them are crying, and some of them are angry and then gnashing their teeth. Because they thought for sure that this is what this was. This nationalistic, like, we're in, they're out. They, that's what they, everyone always thought this was. But Jesus, the new Moses, the new Elijah, the new Elisha, he walks in and there's like this, this gathering of, of the Jewish people and there's walls and there's giant city gates and they're closed because they don't want anyone else in. And Jesus finishes the work that the covenant always said would happen. What Elijah always talked about, I'm going to take this to everyone else. The covenant's going to be opened up to the world. And Jesus walks over and he just kicks the doors open and they come flying open. Jesus foresees the Gentiles coming in. He foresees the reconciliation of the oppressor and the oppressee. He foresees um, all of those God's people being willing. And by the way, Paul in Romans 14 writes extensively about this. There's a church and there's powerful people and there's people that are weak. And the weaker people are like this sparse. It's like the reverse of this. It's like a sparse gathering of Jews who are offended by what they see as like this, these liberal actions of the Greek. Um, and the Greeks are there, the Gentiles, and they're, they're upset because the Jewish people aren't going with them. And so they're having all these theological arguments. And Paul writes to all of them and says, are you willing to shut up about your differences? Are you willing to humble yourselves in the midst of other people and accept that they're not going to agree with you, but instead look at Christ standing in the middle of you, who was God who humbled himself and brought healing to you. And that's what Paul writes to the church. That's my paraphrase of Romans 14. <laughs> Not a long book. What is happening here, the socioeconomic implications of this passage alone, not to mention everything around it, is shocking. Matthew is calling his church, that's who he wrote this for, his church, so they could remember when he's gone. These, are, these books were written by aging apostles who were about to die, and they were trying their best to leave something behind to teach their church, and man, did they do it. And he writes to his church and he says, the church will be a place where everyone is willing to give up their power and their authority and their privilege and their, their finances and their freedom. Everything, they're willing to give it all up and give it to Jesus so that the lowest of the low can be healed. That's what the church will do. And guys, we get so far off of that. And we do our best not to understand the scriptures. Because if we understand the scriptures, it kind of hurts. It's convicting. Um, Matthew is intensely concerned with the discipling of the nations. He writes in, in 28.19, he says, he writes, um, uh, you know, go ye into all the world and you're going to make disciples of every nation. The problem with trying to disciple the nations is that most people, Christians included, majority of Christians, have already been discipled in sort of this entirely other thing based upon their own culture, their own nation. 
there's so much involved. Their whole lives, they've been discipled in one particular way. And to speak to them and say, the kingdom of God is actually antithetical to that. And it rises above it. It rises above all these separations that you, that you put on each other. Um, and instead of looking at the heart of people, the heart of love, pouring yourself out for them, you first judge them by whether or not they're wearing a red hat, whether or not they are a certain skin color, whether or not they, their legal status in a country. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with any of that. The kingdom of God is far and above everything else, which is why we should be willing to give up our honor and our power and our authority because it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. I had this guy walk up to me last week. I was taking my son Pilgrim. He's three. You take him out for a little walk. And we're just walking around and just having the best time. This guy walks up to me, walks up behind me. Um, he says, sir. He was like, he had to be in his 80s. He looks at me and he says, when I was your son's age, I remember my dad walking me around Ybor City. You know, we'd stop and get crab cakes and all this. And he just told stories about him and his dad. He's a little old man with his wife. And he said, I want you to know, it was the most meaningful time of my life. And what you're doing is you're not, you're not taking your son for a walk. You're, you're giving your son something to hold on to for the rest of his life. We had this like emotional sort of connection for a moment. I get emotional just thinking about it. And I'm looking this guy in the eye. I'm looking at him like, it's, it's funny how many people would never talk to this guy because he's wearing a vest with a giant American flag on his pen and a big red hat that says, Make America Great Again. And we are having this intensely beautiful, loving conversation because he's a child of God. How many of you push people away because of political ideologies, because of some button or pin that they would wear, because of some flag that they would hold? And Jesus would walk right past you up to this person and say, I see a day where there's a feast and there's a table and all these people who were the in crowd, um, they don't want you there. But you know what I see? I see the table has a lot more of you than you realize, more than they realize. Jesus is not doing what you're doing. Jesus is not doing what I'm doing. He's not playing these games. He's not doing this, this racial oppress, this, this, all this like racial oppressor versus oppressee stuff. Matthew's audience, here's one last key to take with you that is shocking. And I didn't even, I didn't even go into this in the first service. Yeah, I'm a little early. Okay. So the book of Matthew was written, give or take, between 70 and 80. Do you know what happened in the year 19, 19? Do you know what happened in the year 70 AD? the Romans came in to Jerusalem and killed all the Jewish people and destroyed their temple, burnt it to the ground and drove the surviving Jews out to the city of Masada, this fortress in the middle of the desert where they starved them to death in a siege for a long enough period of time that the people inside the city all killed themselves because they knew there was no way out. The book of Matthew was written in the 10 years following that episode. And Matthew specifically includes a story about a, a, a Roman centurion, the full-on enemy of the Jewish people. But this centurion is, is lovely. Nobody wants to hear a story about their enemies being lovely. Nobody does. You don't. 
That person you hate, you don't want to hear somebody talking about all the great things that they've done. It's offensive to you. Jesus takes joy in it. Matthew's audience is reading a story about the person and the people who literally killed their family members by the sword, destroyed their religion, burnt their temple down. And, and in this story, he, he, all these new followers of Jesus, and the first thing Jesus does, he says, you know who's going to be at the table? This Roman centurion with you. How much are you willing to reconcile? How much are you willing to forgive? How much are you willing to give up to reconcile with people? That's the whole point of the whole thing. There is so many angles to come at this passage from. I'm leaving you with a few of them to sit and think about. We're going to go to communion. Our communion servers, why don't you go, guys go ahead. If, if you're here, do we have you? Yes, three. All right. Um, and they're going to grab the communion elements, and they're going to gather and spread around the room. I want you to take some time and sit in this. Who is the Roman centurion in your life? Who is the enemy? Who is the one, your opponent? Who is the one that you are offended by? And love? Who, who are they? And can you picture that person serving and loving you and your people? Can you picture that person um, in an embrace with Jesus as Jesus says, hey, why don't you come sit at the table with us? The table that was not set for you. Come on in. So let's ponder that and let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for your word. Thank you that uh, you have a kingdom that you intend to establish that rises above all other kingdoms, all other separations, cultural boundaries. Those who have been hurt, those who are the ones who hurt others, it rises above all of that. And you are able to reconcile us all to each other under your banner. Remind us, remind us that our flag does not belong to any nation or country or city or people group. Our flag, we have, we have a flag and it is, as the prophets say, his, his banner over us is love. The representation that we have is the cross. That is the power that we cling to. It is a power which pours itself out for healing and reconciliation of the world around us. Thank you for this morning. Absolutely convict us. Convict us of the ways that we have taken part in what the world is doing. Convict us of the ways that we have uh, not been charitable and gracious. Remind us that peace only comes through grace, not through conquering even the ideas of other people. Peace comes through grace. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time in prayer. Amen.